This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to physiotherapist and researcher Mick Girdwood about his research on knee injuries and osteoarthritis and their association with the strength of the hip and knee muscles. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So today I'm talking to soon to be Dr. Mick Girdwood, perhaps next year, if everything goes to plan, Mick's in the final stages of his PhD at the Latrobe Sports and Exercise Medicine Research Center in Melbourne, Australia. He's working with a number of people that you've heard from before on this podcast and a number of people you'll be familiar with if you follow sports medicine research, I'm sure we'll be naming them all in this discussion. And Mick's also a practicing clinician, physiotherapist, and we'll get into that and his background as well in this chat. And in this episode, what I really want to talk to Mick about is some of his research findings, and we'll go beyond the title and the abstract and really talk about what he's finding and, and what the group are finding and the processes that he's using, and maybe some of the parts of that research that you can take and use yourself in the clinic. So it should be a lot of fun. Mick Girdwood, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And um, I agree, hopefully it all goes well next year, but uh, time will tell. (laughs) So you're you're due to hand up in September, if all goes well, September 2024. And I was a September baby as well with my (laughs) PhD submission. So good luck. Well, uh, I can follow in such esteemed footsteps as right. yourself, Luke. That would be good. <laughs> so tell us about, we'll, we'll talk about your PhD. Let's talk about who you are first. Tell us about your background and interests and what sure. first got you interested in physiotherapy and then research. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think I probably uh, became interested in becoming a physio when I, I spent a lot of time at physio clinics, which is probably a a familiar story to many other clinicians as well. And yeah, I was injured I had a fair bit uh, when I was younger. So I had some back issues and some shoulder pain issues um, related to a lot of sport I was playing, so a lot of water polo that I was playing when I was younger. And yeah, I think it just sort of piqued my interest as an interesting career to, um, yeah, to think about. At the time, I hadn't really considered anything like it. I was looking at doing design and architecture type subjects and things. Um, and got to the end of school and thought, oh, don't really know what I want to do. Pretty much toss of a coin decision. And, um, yeah, luckily ended up uh, where I am now, I guess. So um, graduated, uh, must be 10 years ago now. Um, and um, initially wasn't too sure when I did the course either, but um, I've still still here now, I guess. So it must be going okay. <laughs> See, I think that's an important, that, that's something that you just, just threw in there, but that's a really important theme of this podcast, that journey that people go on, especially mm. the new grads and students. And we've made them uh, that point many times that you may not know where you want to go and many doors will open in the future. So it was sort of a toss of a coin thing. You weren't sure if you wanted to yeah. do physio and then here you are thriving in the profession. So Maybe just for a second, a bit of an unplanned mm. segue, just talk to the, the students listening here about you know, that, that feeling of you know, going from design and architecture, maybe I'll do physio, I'm not sure what, what the profession is, to mm. building, a, building a really successful career. How did, how did that feel in the first couple of years compared to now? Yeah, uh, I mean, 
at, you know, that time of your life, like I went straight from school into university, you've got a lot of uncertainty in your life. And uh, I was lucky enough, you know, I'm lucky to have lived a pretty privileged life. So thankfully, not too many hard decisions, but that was probably one of the harder decisions for me in life was, you know, working out what to do. And, um, and you know, the first couple of years at uni, I didn't really love it, to be honest. Um, I, I didn't mind it, but I certainly wouldn't say that I enjoyed my university course all that much and um, which just added to the uncertainty really. And I think it wasn't mm. until I probably got out into placements that I sort of started to see, you know, what I was looking for, I guess, or what that, you know, the enjoyment behind it. And, um, and yeah, what certainly once, you know, graduating, getting out into clinical practice, it was, I think the, I think the thing that I enjoy that most still today is the, the, the problem solving aspect of it. You know, you're trying to help people work through a problem and um, that's something I'm, that, is yeah, I enjoy not just in a clinical context, but just in other parts of my life as well. I think so. That's the thing that always, I guess, keeps me coming back. But yeah, I think um, I, I you know I still occasionally run into people that I, I studied with, and they're always quite surprised to hear that I'm working at a university or you know working in research because they remember that I wasn't exactly um, overjoyed with university at the time. But it just shows how things can change pretty quickly, I guess. Hmm. And how much you change personally. Exactly. In, in, from the very young years where you're still a, developing mm. from a kid into an adult. Exactly. Um, and not to make too many decisions based on how you're feeling at that time. Maybe just play through the, the yeah. years and see where you end up. Yeah. I certainly, I mean, I've, you know, given lo- this advice to plenty of um, my friends and, and colleagues and things as well. Like, you know, I went straight from school, straight into university, straight into working. And, and you know, it's a cliche, but there's a lot to be said for just, taking it slowly if you have the opportunity to and just working out actually is that the the right thing for you or you know there's no pressure necessarily to go and chase the career straight away I think in um the medical world we're we're surrounded by so many um you know very talented highly you know academic and intelligent people and so you can kind of get sucked into this escalator a little bit thinking you have to graduate as quick as you can to the best career possible but um I think if you lucky to have that opportunity to think about things. It, it's it's great to just be able to step back and go, oh, I might just have a, a bit of time to myself or a year off or something like that, which I didn't have, but it still worked out. <laughs> mm. But, you know, there's life still ahead of you and you're a skier as well and you're, or you're exactly. a skier. I'm a skier, yeah. You're no, a skier, I'm okay. Good. You're yeah. allowed to be on the podcast then, that's fine. Exactly, no, I'm yeah. on the dark side, yep. Very good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so balancing all those things are, can happen within your career, but you've been really busy. You've done a lot in those 10 years since graduating. And where we met was in um, the football club, working in the Indy Blues, Melbourne University Blues Football Club. So Susanna mm. introduced me to you and the club, Susanna was the head physio there for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you became the head physio. And weren't you, um, weren't you in a, a new grad or a student when Susanna first started working there and she was yeah. a mentor of yours? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's where I met yourself, obviously, and I met Susanna before then as well. Yeah, so I think I worked there as a student, or worked there as a you know as a trainer, and then uh, when I graduated, I, I was there working as a physio, and then at, um, yeah, but at some point I was head physio for a while, and then now I'm. It's funny how you know life's changed. Now I'm sort of the, I guess I work in that more mentoring kind of role that. Um, Susanna and yourself worked in for me, which is funny how life comes full circle. But um, I think that's yeah. I really enjoyed being able to kind of work with the 
the younger clinicians that are so passionate about everything and, and have so much knowledge, it's kind of, it's, it's more useful for me. I get to kind of stay up to date with things and learn everything off them as much as um, it's the other way around as well. Hmm. And that, that was a really, really um, interesting position to be in there with, uh, in that club for you mm. and for me, because we had a team of really, uh, really good sports doctors, including Peter Bruckner of the mm. clinical sports medicine textbook mm. fame. So you get to rub shoulders with and work with people like that. So we, uh, mm. we've both been really lucky. So, and then how oh, it's so- incredible. Yeah. Like it, it, so fortunate to be able to work in that environment and, and to form so many connections and, um, so many people in the sports medicine community of sort of passed through there, which um, is, is probably a credit to, to Brookie and all his hard work and everyone else that's that's worked there as well. Mm. And then you um, started, you were a research assistant at the Latrobe Sports and Exercise Medicine Centre, yeah, the so Lysum Centre. Yeah, so I worked clinically for a few years, sort of, I think I only worked clinically full-time for about a year or two and then um, just was really lucky to um uh, to be approached with you know this opportunity for a research assistant role someone said look there's this role going you might be interested in it and um i'd always been interested in you know we always like to chat about best evidence and that sort of stuff and i like to to be as up to date as i could in the clinic and um yeah this this role worked out with um jill cook and ebony rao and sean docking so i'm very grateful to them for my very um off the cuff start in research and that was yeah, a long time ago, maybe 2016 or so. And and it just started as a couple of days a week and it's sort of grown and grown since then, basically. Um, I had a little stint overseas working where I sort of took a break from it and then came back and I've been sort of, yeah, full-time research probably for the last, well, yeah, four or five years, I guess. So it was an, an off-the-cuff start to research yeah, for like being a research assistant. How does it, but how did you get that? Was it luck? Did you, did you network? Yeah, it's a, well, I mean, I'd say it's a lot of luck. Um, so at the clinic I, I work with, um, uh, Matt King, who uh, also works at Latrobe, he's, he's um, did his PhD in biomechanics. So we we used to chew the fat together in the lunchroom and, um, and he at the time had started his PhD or maybe he was just about to. And um, yeah, I think they were about to advertise the position and, and you know, Matt, kindly approached Ebbs and Jill and said, look, you know, this some, this guy might be interested. And, you know, we basically just tried it out for a couple of weeks and I hung around um, for good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so those yeah. conversations, yeah, in the lunchroom. Yeah. Um, mm. Sometimes you, you have those conversations. You think, well, I'm just having lunch. I'm just talking. Exactly. But mm. yeah, networking isn't always standing at a conference wearing a nice shirt and the hello, my name is Luke and trying to talk to somebody. Yeah. It's, it's quite often informal in that way. Absolutely. I'm a particularly bad networker and um, I think um, – I'd say most of mine is always informal. I'm I'm quite bad at, or I, I don't particularly enjoy the yeah the formally going up to people that sort of thing. I, I'm much preferred at organic, and it's easy to say that I guess. But um, yeah, most of my networks have been developed through those sort of conversations. So it's good. Um, yeah, just to be able to chat things through, and you never know what might come up in someone you know someone's background or someone's life that you, you might uncover, and then it leads to something else, as you say. Mm. And then you can see all the people you've worked with in your publications. If you go and Google Scholar and look you up, um, mm. all the co-authors, really impressive um, collaboration and team of people. So tell us about your mm. PhD. So you, what are you doing it in and uh, what are you finding? Let, let's, let's start talking about research. Sure. So 
Yeah, look, my, my PhD is in um, ACL injuries, which is, it's funny, it wasn't a, a, a massive passion of mine necessarily, but we have a lot of projects in the ACL space at the moment. And so um, particularly interested in um, muscle strength changes after ACL injury and also some whether there are some changes to people's um, brain functioning, so sort of the neuroscience side of things. And as with all PhDs, it's sort of shape-shifted over the years quite um, since it, we first, you know, conceived these ideas. It's come quite different to what it was, as you know, from your experience. But, um, yeah, so really looking in at, I guess, the some of the longer-term consequences to ACL injury and reconstruction and also some of the sort of lesser looked-at things. Mm. Some of your papers are directly from your PhD and mm. others are – you're the second, third, fourth author. Um, mm. So you're working in with other people. And if mm. you're not in research and publishing, but you're sort of thinking about doing it in the future, that's something that's useful to know. Not all the papers you do will be you as the lead author leading the project. Um, so what, what are some of the roles you've had in some of those um, yeah. other co-authorships? So I'm, I'm thinking about the person who's listening to this and saying, I could do this in the future. And they're sort yeah. of interested in, not just yep. the PhD, but some of the other working with people in the research group. I mean, I think for me, it's just been invaluable doing, getting the research experience before starting a PhD, because you actually learn a lot of that stuff beforehand. You learn whether it's for you before you sign up to this three and a half year, you know, um, journey, I guess. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, look, my roles to begin with, like we're very much you know, it, it was anything and everything. So from the most administrative tasks to, you know, really nitty gritty kind of, um, yeah, research stuff. So really quite mundane things, data checking to, you know, all of a sudden here's some data that we've just got sitting around and um, why don't you have a go at trying to fashion this into a paper and that sort of thing. So I've said this to some of the, you know, the newer people that have come on to work with us as well. It's you sort of, prove your worth in one thing and you'll keep getting thrown responsibilities and all of a sudden it, it, it snowballs. So I think it's sort of, um, and everyone's different. Like I was, you know, I've worked with, I'd be like I have to work with lots of different people. Some people are very prescriptive in how they give you work. Other people are much more sort of open-ended and, and are happy to let you kind of take on a lot of responsibility, which can work really well for some people. I think it worked really well for me at the time because it just got me, it gave me a chance to try a bit of everything and it meant that I got lucky enough to yet, yeah, jump on the end of lots of papers and, and help out with those sort of um, things, which probably set me up pretty well, I guess. But I think for anyone that's thinking about it, like there's most of the time, most research teams are time poor and are looking for some help. And if you're willing to kind of um, chip in and, and you know, you might not be doing the most exciting work to begin with, but I think in some ways you'll always, it's, it's not, you know, people think of research as, oh, it's this really drab, dull thing, but if you enjoy thinking about things and really trying to work out what's going on in a problem, I think that's a great place to, to work in that sort of field. Yeah. You do have to have that curiosity. Yeah. That's yeah. a good word. Curiosity yeah. is a good word. Yeah. So um, you also got a NHMRC, which is National Medical um, Health and Research Council. Um, 
um, scholarship, post-grad scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the same one, I think 10 years before you did. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure that it's become mm-hmm. 10 times more difficult to get something like that in the time. But so a lot of uh, how you can get your funding for your PhD actually comes from not just your honours and having honours equivalents in your degree, mm. but also the work in a research centre. So the points you'd get on at some sort of a scholarship score that would help you get your funding that pays mm. your bills while you do your PhD. Um, so it comes from a combination of your academic marks, mm. your experience in a research centre, plus your publications. So that would have really helped as well. So you're working for a few years, finding out, like you said, whether you even enjoy it or not, or what areas you're interested in. And, yep. and then getting those publications as well. And you need, I think, a yeah. minimum of a couple of um, couple of first exactly. order papers to get your scholarship. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah, you're right. Certainly for scholarship, like, you know, our course when I went through as an undergrad didn't have honours, so I didn't, I was never really, I couldn't have even done honours, not that I think I probably would have when I was the headspace I was in at the time. But you're right, though, the first author equivalence and just being that experience is what kind of shines through on those applications. And as you say, they're, I'm sure they were competitive back then when you yeah. did yours as well, but they are certainly ultra competitive at the moment, especially with the sort of post-COVID environment that's going around. But it's not to say that they're, you know, they're certainly not impossible to get, but um, yeah, you can't, you, you need a little bit of pre-planning. You can't just walk straight into a PhD and 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 have it all laid out for you, unfortunately, in our field so much. Mm. And that's where those conversations with people who are mm. already in research are really important and hopefully we're supplementing that a little bit with these podcast episodes and for people yeah, who are exactly. curious and thinking about going in that direction and give you some ideas about the the conversations to have with people and what to expect. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. Like when I when I was a new grad uh, and I was very keen and soaked up every piece of information that I could as a clinician, I, I used, you know, I'm not a big podcast listener, but back then I used to listen to a, a reasonable number of kind of clinical or medical related podcasts. And I think that's sort of what piqued my interest in this area. So I guess if you're listening to these sort of things, you might be, you might've been like us as well back then. And then that sort of started that curiosity for you. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I've definitely had conversations with Tom Piers Barlow, who was on a couple mm. of episodes ago. Tom was listening to these episodes and picking up on ideas and he wanted to follow mm. up on some of them <laughs> in a Zoom. And I said, well, let's record that Zoom. There's mm, an episode mm. right there. So yeah, mm. so. I think it's an important thing to talk about. So let's talk about knees then. Mm. So your research interests, your area, your field, it's interesting. It didn't start off, you didn't come to the university with this idea. I want to, uh, I see a lot of people with ACLs in the clinic. I really want to, I've got these questions I want to answer. You came into a, a group who were doing a lot of knee research mm. and in many ways, that's a lot easier to come in and be open to developing a project with what's available rather than bringing a project in. I guess it, they're two very different ways to go about it, but either way, you ended up in a knee related project and that's my special interest area as well. <laughs> it might, yeah, it's my funny. PhD it's, on, the, on the ACL as well. So let's get into that. Yeah, I know. Well, I was brushing through your thesis just the other day, Luke, just to um, um, catch up on all of that, which is- He, he was having trouble sleeping and he thought, I'll <laughs> read a few chapters of this. Yeah. yeah. It is funny though, like, yeah, plenty of people come into these sort of projects with a real passion project. And it's not to say that I'm not passionate about what I do, but, you know, some people, yeah, it's, it's 10 years of, or 20 years of clinical experience and they go, oh, I've just been dying to try to find this thing out. And for me, it was much more, you know, I just enjoy the stimulation and the scratching an itch of kind of 
being curious about these sort of things and this happened to be the thing that sort of came up and yeah so I think you know knee injury I think at one point I probably would have said like there's too much research in knee injuries I don't even you know I should go and work in something that needs a bit more help but in many ways even though it's one of the most researched things in you know physiotherapy full stop I think there's still so much we don't know and particularly in the long term like we're very good well we think we're very good at uh, the early stages post knee injury in terms of what to do but so many people have such long-term burden after even you know simple simple quote unquote knee injuries that um i think there's a lot still to be um that we still need to work out and that's you know my my thing is one tiny little piece of that puzzle i guess <laughs> mm. and that's some of brooke patterson's um research there thinking about um how how many people almost quit their their rehab early on before yeah. they get to their you know get the optimized outcomes so exactly yeah. i think um in clinical practice you sort of think we've done a good job when we get people you know post acl we've, we've done you know we've we managed to keep them in for a good nine to 12 months of rehab and we think they're back to whatever they want to do but that person has to live with their knee for the rest of their life and yeah. and for lots of people they do they're really happy but there's plenty of people that are they're not unhappy but they're certainly not at 100 function and for people that are quite young that's quite a big deal if you're 30 or 25 or 35 whatever it might be even if you're older you've got a lot of life still left ahead of you and and if you haven't got full knee function that can be quite a big burden for people and, and quite a big um yeah can really impact their their quality of life mm. So you're following people over many years, looking at their strength and seeing how strength associates with uh, other outcomes and predicts other outcomes. So tell us a bit yeah. about that. What are, so if you focus on your area, um, mm -hmm. there's a hip and knee strength and other variables. So why, yeah. why hip and knee strength important for people with knee injuries and knee osteoarthritis as a starting point? Yeah. So, I mean, as as physios, we love strength. You know, we it's it's of course you know it's really important for your your movement um, quality, movement function, ability to to do your task, particularly if you're playing sport, that sort of thing. We know it's so in in, in non traumatic NOA, so people that just develop knee arthritis without a, a an, an injury or incident causing it over time. We know that it's linked to worsening arthritis. So if you if you're weaker, your you, your joint structure becomes worse over time. And so, of course, that would make sense that that is the same in post-ACL space as well, although it's probably a little bit less clear there, which is um, sort of surprising as well. We know that people develop arthritis much earlier and much quicker um, post-ACL injury. And so muscle strength might be one of those factors that influences that. And um, hip strength in particular is obviously something that in, in knee injuries, we, you know, looking at the patellofemoral pain world is is a very big you know part of people's rehab and and their their goals and so in, same in the ACL space and you know we I've been lucky to take on a, a project from um, yourself and um, Adam Colvin has started almost um, 10 11 years ago now and we're looking at some really longer term follow ups of people after ACL injury so we've been able to get some really nice long term outcomes um, and trying to see whether some of the muscle strength that way back you know 10 years ago when these people first had their injuries it all related to their um their longer term outcomes hmm. um which is an interesting question the, the more you think about it, the more interesting that is strength mm. is something that can change so quickly mm. a, a point in time measurement of strength 
provides an indication of, well, really, how strong they are mm. 10 years ago or more. Yes, exactly. And yet the, you, you found, surprisingly, you found some, some strong associations with where people end up in the future. Talk to yeah. us about that. Yeah, so yeah, we, we published a paper, I think it's last year or this year, I'm kind of losing track, but um, looking at whether hip strength, um, specifically the hip rotation strength, so internal and external rotation, and whether that was related to longer term outcomes. So uh, up to sort of five years post-operatively, whether their um, knee symptoms, their knee joint structure, so measured on MRI, and also their um, knee function and how that was sort of all related. and. Yeah, interestingly, we did find, you know, a, a modest but um, a, um, a relationship between their worse, so weaker hip external rotation strength and worsening knee symptoms and also worsening knee um, tibiofemoral structural outcomes. So if you were weaker, you were more likely to have a, a, a worsening knee joint, if, if I guess. Um, and that's interesting because nothing, no one's really looked at anything like that in the ACL space before. There's only a couple of papers in knees in general that look at hip strength and, and long-term outcomes. And so, you know, it's a cautious finding to begin with, but it certainly su suggests that maybe there's some sort of, that might be one part of the picture for some people. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned that sort of a moment in time thing, and you're right, that was just one moment one year ago. And so maybe those people, you know, were still going to be continue to make gains in their strength, or they, they might have just had a, you know, uh, a particularly nasty injury that slowed them down. So you're right, it's just one moment in time that doesn't tell us the full story of, of a person necessarily. But that's what you do. You measure things and you, mm. you make decisions or give people advice on mm. what the most likely outcome will be if they don't change that. Exactly. And may, it may well be that, you know, if you get to 12 months after an operation, you haven't yet returned to your previous um, mm. level of sport and mm. you haven't developed the strength that you, you could have developed. That's something that's that traders can play out over time as well. So it's, yeah. it, it's not feasible to be measuring people's strength every, every two weeks for, uh, for 15 years and then tracking that. But it's, um, it's just interesting to see how you could get – those relationships playing out over decades. Yeah, and and I think that the change over time is another thing that's really interesting to me. So I have we we have a, a a whopper systematic or whopper group of systematic reviews at the moment that are sort of under submission, looking at um, change in strength over time. So not you know there's been hundreds of or thousands of papers published reports strength after ACL injury. And we've tried to sort of summarize them all and go, look, this is how strength changes over time. Not just, you know, traditionally in a review, we'd say it's either weaker or it's stronger, or there's this effect size or there's that effect size. We're trying to go, okay, it starts here and it actually, you know, one year there's these massive deficits. And actually, even though there's less data in the long term, but five and 10 years, it's, you know, quad strength is still really reduced. And so they're suggesting there's some really permanent changes. And um, so we've got, yeah, a, we've got a review focusing on non-thigh non muscle strength, so hip and calf strength. And then we've also got one focusing on quad and hamstring strength, which will hopefully come out sometime early next year. And um, yeah, some really interesting stuff in that as well, um, which, the hip strength is interesting as well. Like something that as a clinician, I'm, I'm sure, I think I probably asked you this at some point, 
you know, if you ask the average person, I think, would you expect someone post-ACL reconstruction to have weaker hip strength? And I think most people would say, well, yeah, we, we do and we target it with our rehab. And our review would suggest that actually we, we didn't find much weakness in their hip muscles at all. Um measured at you know that kind of classic six to two six month to two year time point which goes against probably what we would expect and certainly goes against what we see in the quads where we see really big deficits um so you know it's easy to say that we're we're doing good rehab that's why they're not getting weakness but i think it's more likely that perhaps actually it's less present than in other conditions potentially Mm. And so hip rotation strength measured mm-hmm. clinically with a handheld dynamometer or with isokinetic yeah, so, dynamometers? Yeah. So I think hip strength is tr- usually measured with a dynamometer. It's pretty hard to set up in a – you can set it up in an isokinetic dynamometer. I think in Australia we don't have so much access to di- isokinetic dynamometers as perhaps in some other countries where clinics operate out of university hospitals and those sort of things. But, yeah, I think it's really – there's lots of great papers out there now on great ways to measure hip strength of the dynamometer. The most important thing is to to make sure that everything is as standardized and stabilized as possible. So using seat belts and things to stabilize all the, the con- contributing movements to it. But um, yeah, so in our study, we, we used um, yeah, hip, uh, standard dynamometer that's easily available to measure hip strength in, you know, the very common positions of of um, the hip at 90 degrees of knee flexion. And I think that's pretty useful. Also um, sitting, belt, uh, um, yeah, and, and then exactly. applying pressure through the, exactly. uh, just above the ankle. Exactly. Yeah. The other way you can do it, of course, is in supine. So with the sort of stabilizing the, the thigh um, with the hip at 90 degrees, which um, you can see a good demonstration for not only one of Joe Kemp's articles on um, hip dynamometry, but I think there was a recent review actually that summarised a lot of the reliability, what the most reliable positions were. I just can't think of the author at the moment, but as long as you're doing it consistently um, to yourself and to an established protocol, it's it's a pretty useful way with, you know, five, 10% measurement error, which is pretty good. Mm. And, and just as long as you understand the measurement error, associated mm. with your the position you're in and, and your technique and to me it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not just the position and it's not just the the fact that you're using a device and getting a number a lot of it comes down to your preparation of the patient we've done a whole episode um, scott morrison yeah. not the pm the physiotherapist <laughs> scott and i did a whole episode on on setup for dynamometry which yeah, listeners I, can go back and listen to but Mm. It, 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 it's, uh, I should probably go and listen to that myself. But um, the uh, as you say, it's really important how you set everything up. And, you know, if, if you're doing a max strength test, it's important that you maximally encourage them. It's one of the, the – there's, there's a whole field of research dedicated to how to do a strength test, basically, and how to actually ensure that it's the max test. And so you want to make sure that you're really encouraging them and um, really making sure that you're able to match their force. That's probably the biggest limiter – in most handheld tests is making sure that you can match the force they're producing. Luckily the hip muscles are not so strong that we, we usually don't have too much of an issue with that. But if you're testing things like the quads and hamstrings, these are pretty big, strong muscles. The setup there is super, super important. Mm. What other outcome measures could we suggest for clinicians who are not in a research group and they're, they're mm. not collecting data for research studies, but they want to, you know, really improve 
patient outcomes. They want to really mm. track things well. So patient reported outcome measures. Um, yeah. So we, we've mentioned strength. I mean, I, we could pick these from the studies that you found have been important. So what would yeah. you suggest for someone in the clinic who's getting started and setting up and, um, and wants to routinely think, measure um, things? I mean, it's a sort of an annoying answer in a way, but it, it's it's what's important to the patient. So for some people, you know, I've done this we, even recently in the, the follow-up study, we, we do a lot of hot tests, for instance, because that's what's traditionally done in the literature and it's commonly recommended. But, you know, I had someone come, one of the patients come up to me and say, I don't do any hopping ever. I don't know why we're doing this test. And, and you know, you have to explain to them and you say, well, this is because that's what we do in this research study. But for some people that might not be relevant. And so I think it's a case of really working with that patient and understanding what they're wanting to do, what's important to them, what their problem is. And so if their problem is not being able to play sport, then, you know, your various hopping and tests, different functional tests could be really important. But even then, if the sport doesn't involve anything to do with those movements, then it's probably less useful, I think. I think, as you say, patient-reported things are really important. So, again, asking, you know, for a patient's goals and, and whether they feel like they can achieve them. So, even things like the patient-specific functional scale. Um, I think we're reasonably good at asking about goals as physios, but we're not so good, I think, at being really specific and then measuring back against it. Um, you know, in, in say in six weeks' time, let's actually check back. Can you do this particular specific thing that you mentioned? Um, and I don't, th- you know, I don't, you know, and obviously then, you know, I don't place too much importance on imaging and those sort of things in in these patient groups yet because I think it's probably a, it's not so easy to access for most people, and b, you know, the it's important, but it's not the only story. I think focusing on what the yeah what the patient finds the most important is the key thing yeah and and really interesting point there about hop tests as an Mm. example a hop Mm. test for a skier i mean Mm. i I don't know um any test of capacity is going to give you information and you know it may be that you know from doing that hop test if you can't do it potentially there's that there's reasons for that is it strength power is it pain, exactly. instability? Exactly. Is it, it's, it's something that's very demanding, could really give you information, but a, a nice chance for us to step back and think, well, what's important to the person? What's important yeah. to the patient as well when you're planning this out? And, and know, I rehab. think at, at the same time, uh, you know, when we, when we get patients in for sort of repeated follow-up studies or we've got a large randomised control trial that I'm lucky to be a part of at the moment and we use hot tests in that as well and, and, and patients in that tell us that it actually helps keep them motivated because it's, they right. want to be, you know, people are inherently competitive as well. So it's not necessarily always just about the collection of the data for your decision-making. It can actually be a way to motivate the patient as well, because oh, I see that I did crap on this score or I, my right leg is not as good as my left leg on this score. So I'm going to use that as a motivator because, you know, the other key thing is we, the challenge is to get people to do their rehabilitation and to do their all the things that we think is the best for them. And so that might be a way to get them engaged. But you're right, you know, hop tests are still really useful. I think um, it's important to test in different planes if you are going to do that. So just a forward hop is not going to really be enough, I don't think. You need to test in, you know, a vertical and some sort of lateral hop um, is, is is good. Um, and But as you say, for 
a certain type of person, it, it might not be necessarily the best. So think about other options as well. I think I would say is that hop tests don't tell you about strength. They, they tell you a little bit about strength, but they're not actually as well correlated as we would think because, you know, it makes sense. They're quite different movements. Mm, and potentially not a linear relationship. It may be mm. that you get enough loss of strength mm. that then it's impacting your physical performance as well. We always assume linear relationships between things. Exactly. In, it, it's the exactly. easiest thing to conceptualize in your head. This goes up, the other one goes mm. down. Let's keep it simple. They all, they, when one goes up by one unit, the other one goes down by one unit. Mm. But in reality, and especially I think, yeah. I think in those tests, you're right. The people that are particularly bad, you know, particularly weak, will perform particularly badly on the, on the hop test. That's not a surprise. But a lot of the time we're using these tests at, say, the later end of their rehab when most people are doing maybe okay. So they're up at, you know, deficits of less than, you know, 15, 10%. And so at that point, the relationship is much more unclear. There's lots of other factors going in. It's their movement confidence. It's their... Um, yeah, all sorts of different things. And so I think at the lower end, it's a good indicator, I think, of, well, maybe it's an okay indicator of those different relationships between different outcomes. But at the upper end, it gets much more murky, unfortunately. And so I think when in doubt, just test the actual, you know, if you want to know about strength, test it. Don't assume it from another test. Mm, that's that's such a good point. And that we see that a lot in uh, in. Well, just a month, I nearly said just in the clinic, but it's 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 all all through physiotherapy, really. Mm. This assumption that someone is mm. moving in a certain way, therefore you're weak there. No, go go ahead and test it. Yeah. It's just and a it's, hypothesis until you've tested it. Yeah. And and hip strength is another example. So in our, you know, we were quite surprised in this review to find that perhaps there wasn't so much hip weakness present. And so we're not saying throw all hip rehab out the window because there will be some people that will be still really weak in their hip abductors or their whatever it might be. But you just need to test that specifically for that person and go, okay, yep, they are weak here. I'll prescribe them this particular thing. Or actually, no, you're really strong in your hips because X, Y, and Z. Let's save that time and I'll dedicate it to something else. Mm. Um, and I think it's easy in ACL rehab is one where it's such a long time. There's a lot of approaches. There's almost, I won't say a recipe, but there's certainly some established protocols where you can sort of just follow the step-by-step approach, which is definitely useful, but you want to make tailor it to what the person needs. Here we go. If there's one take-home message from this end of the conversation, <laughs> it's you know think about what's important to the person and what yeah. they need and base your rehab on what you can assess and, and what, what the person needs. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, the other reason I think that's important is when it's not working is you then can go back and measure and go, okay, well, oh, actually we didn't improve this thing. You know, we didn't improve your quad strength despite the last three months of training. Okay, well, we need to go back to the drawing board or no, actually that's, your quad strength is heaps stronger, but you're still really suffering. Okay, we need to look at a completely different thing. Mm. It, it kind of helps guide your clinical reasoning to understand what why has something worked, which will then help your next decision, I think. Hmm. I mean, there's arguments for doing less measurement as well. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of reasons for that. And so we're, we're often pro-measurement, especially people like you and I who come from a research mm. background and still have our feet in the, in the clinical mm. area through education mm. or through practice. Mm. This sort of agenda of let's measure things really well and um, track mm. outcomes. 
And then you've only got a certain amount of time with the person as well. So absolutely, whenever you can, you know, make your assessment a part of the management can be a really mm. good thing. So you mentioned using a hop test as motivation. There's also a mm. training effect happening there. Mm. As you're mm. hopping, mm. you're going to improve. The reason you do th- at least three practice trials before you go and you do mm. at least three trials um, and unless you're getting better and then you do another one. That's yeah. a, the standard protocol for hopping. The reason you do that is because you improve as you're, as you're doing it. So there's a training effect and motivation, confidence will build with the, with Mick there as my physio telling me, Hey, it's okay. It will be a little sore, but look, you're actually going further each time. I probably may not have figured that out on my own, just doing some, some training at home. So th- th- there's yeah, more to it than just the physical. hundred percent. I think a lot of the, even muscle strength training, I think a lot of the time, probably we're actually not doing that good muscle strength training with our patients. We, they're, they're doing something that's having an effect, but it could be a lot better, but it's still getting them better because I think in a way we're, we're doing graded exposure to things. We're, we're helping to expose our um, the person that's got this problem or this barrier to them. We're exposing them to new things. It's helping them understand that they have the capacity to do something. Um and so again, that's where that language around how we explain everything and how you, you you nurture someone through that process is really important. And so, um, you know, it's funny. The more I spend looking at muscle strength and function, these things, the more I think, is it the the, the true muscle change that's doing this, or is it some other non-specific thing? Is it the the ex, the grading of the exposure? You know, the the just getting them to work harder and and slowly, they will un, be able to do more and more versus actually a physiological change. I don't honestly know anymore. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? There's um, there's so much more to it than muscle fibers, exactly. actin and myosin, exactly. and cross bridges and things contracting. And it, there, there's a person there who- It's um, not to dispute those things, but yeah. it's still, you know, it, that's not the only thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's really good. Any final thoughts, Mick? Oh, look, I think it's interesting you mentioned about not over-measuring. I, I agree. I think even though we come, you know, I work in a background where we measure everything to, to an inch of its life. You know, elite sport is a good example where these days everything is about measuring everything in a hundred different ways and getting as much data as you can. But I'm a real advocate for just getting a good couple of simple outcomes so that A, you can be confident that it's true and that they're not biasing each other. You're not starting to, you know, if you do too many tests, the fatigue from one will start to influence the next one. And all of a sudden that's a problem. So I think just choosing a couple of being really simple is, is I guess what I'm trying to say in a really non-simple way, <laughs> but there's no need to overcome. I think we overcomplicate a lot of stuff. And so I think if we can just pare it back, do, do a few simple things well, that will often be better than throwing the kitchen sink at something. Yeah. Well said. Well, that's that's a really good start. I hope we can talk, uh, we can talk again. You know, next September, hopefully, if all goes well, <laughs> you'll have a thesis handed in. You'll have all your final. Um, it's on the record now. And, yeah, yeah. We can, we, people <laughs> in the meantime can look at your papers. I, um, as you were talking about your hip strength five year follow up paper, I had that one open. It's open mm-hmm. access, and so you can sort of even. I've I've gone off making really detailed show notes. I don't know how many people look at them. Uh, I, I certainly put the timestamps in as I edit mm-hmm. the episode so people can sort of flick through and that's the section where Mick was talking about this and they can go back to it. Um, but you can you can easily find all of Mick's research with a quick Google Scholar or 
PubMed search. So I encourage you to do that and have a bit of a look at all the great work that he's doing and his research group are doing. But Mick, thanks for coming on and sharing some of your insights with us today. We'll have to do it again. Really appreciate that, Luke. It's um, a, a, yeah, really think it's a, a great way to kind of bridge the medium between um, research into the clinical world. And yeah, I'm, I think reaching out through whatever channels, like you can always send me an email. I think that's these are those informal things that we spoke about at the start of the episode. So very happy to to chat if anyone has any questions about anything or is just curious about yeah getting involved or anything like that. I've gone off um, dobbing people in for um, <laughs> contacting you. The old question of where can people find out more about you and your work and how can yeah. people get in contact with you? Sort of wait for people to volunteer that now. But there you go. Very generous. If you want to chat more yeah. to me, you can find him. Old-fashioned email is probably the best for me, I think. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a big social media user. So, um, but yeah, always well, happy to respond to an email. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. His email's sitting right there on the Latrobe um, side if, you, if you're interested and you can always <laughs> go and track me down and have more of a conversation just like the one that you had with matt king in the tea mm. room prior to your exactly um even coming on as a research assistant before your phd it, it sort of starts with these with curiosity is a key word from today and mm. thinking about um your shared ideas and it's, it's often the less formal conversations like the one we're having now that can uh, mm. where a lot of info can come from so yeah thanks mm. again mick it's a great conversation pleasure. my pleasure thanks luke so just remember, if you got this far, you probably enjoyed it, or at least you fast forwarded to here. Maybe you enjoyed parts of it. If, if you found this conversation helpful, please share it. You can follow Susanna and I at Periton Physio. By the way, Susanna sends her regards to you, Mick, and to <laughs> all the listeners. Um, she's in the pain cave at the moment, finalizing mm. her PhD thesis. Um, we'll fish her out of there soon. <laughs> yeah, she'll come out of there and get her some sunlight and some healthy food and uh, and get her back to normal and get her back on the podcast. But um, until then, you can track me down at Periton Physio or at Luke Periton, and we can look up Mick on the internet. So until next time, this is Mick Girdwood and Luke Periton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development, and lifelong learning. <laughs>